Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of President Harry Truman, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, General Douglas MacArthur, Eric Johnston, Senator Tom Conley, Harold Stassen, Senator Kenneth Query, Leo DeRocher, David Lilienthal, and more than 40 other men and women in the news in the seventh performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every week at this time. Let no Russian leader underestimate the fabulous productive capacity of this country. If we must, we can fight and we will fight and we will win. The gruff, arrogant policeman has no place in modern society. The policeman cannot afford to lose his temper, however great the provocation. That steak comes to 325. What? 325 for a steak? Oh, Fred. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real. They are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding in the difficult days ahead. Here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. The important new phrase in the American vernacular this week, as it was last week, was the great debate. The great debate on sending troops to Europe was being waged around the country generally and specifically in Washington. Perhaps not as well argued as the Lincoln-Douglas debate of 1858, but considerably more abundant in words, gestures, and protagonists. Mr. President, will the Senator yield? I yield to my good friend from Massachusetts. But all the debates in Washington were not the great one, perhaps fortunately for the nation's sanity, if not its safety. There were also some arguments in Washington which had nothing to do with remaking the world. The two voices you just heard were those of Senator Leverett Saltonstall of Massachusetts as he interrupted an oration by 64-year-old William Langer, the senator from North Dakota. Langer was using the Senate floor to declaim at great length, as he has done so often before, on Dakota's unsung physical resources, human and otherwise. The senior senator from Massachusetts interrupted Senator Langer to ask why, if North Dakota possessed such vast physical resources, the senator had turned elsewhere for his bride. I think the senator from North Dakota is presenting his case in a very strong light. I should like to ask the senator one question. Did not the senator himself go to Columbia University in New York for a good legal education? And did he not at that time find the very lovely lady, then a resident of the state of New York, who has since been his fine wife and good mother to his four daughters? I may say to my good friend from Massachusetts... That before I went to Columbia University, I went to the University of North Dakota. Naturally, when I got to New York, I was of an age where I was attracted by some very fine girls. 
However, I want to make it clear that at the time I met the lovely young lady who became Mrs. Langer, I did not know from what state she came. Mr. President, will the senator yield further? North Dakota yields to no other state when it comes to the beauty of its women, their intellect and their charm, or their ability to make fine wives, lovely hostesses, and excellent mothers. The nice thing about this country is that in every state, we are proud of the fact that American women are at the very top of womanhood in the entire world. During my travels in Europe, I never saw any women who could compare with the women of the United States. The great debate, now in its fourth big week in the nation's capital, was still playing to packed houses. But so taxing were the roles that the stars seemed to change each week. Last week it was Truman and Taft. This week it was Wherry of Nebraska and Connolly of Texas. Last week's principals, Senator Taft and the president, seemed almost mellow this week. The Ohio senator willing to make certain concessions... And here is the president, obviously making some kind of friendship gesture to the opposition. Somebody sent me a cartoon from Punch a day or two ago in which the cartoonist was uh, depicting a, an argument in the Senate of the Carthaginians. And one able senator of the Carthaginians was saying that Hannibal should not be allowed to use elephants in Italy because the Senate should control the use of those elephants. <laughs> That's been going on ever since uh, uh, we had senates and senators. And I've served 10 years in the Senate and I know just exactly how they feel. There isn't a senator in the Senate who's not just as anxious to see the United States government continue as the free government of the world as I am. And I know that no matter what they say for publication, when the time comes for action, they'll be right there in their way. On Tuesday, two of these senators locked horns over the president's right to send troops to Europe without the consent of Congress. The Democrats held that since George Washington's day, U.S. presidents in time of emergency had such a right. Senator Kenneth Wary, Republican of Nebraska, said that his fellow Republicans, and according to his mail, the American people, did not acknowledge any such right for Mr. Truman. And the minority leader offered a resolution on this. The resolution that I uh, put in the Senate around which all of this debate has centered, and regardless of what happens to the resolution, believe me, it was, it's the basis upon which all of these debates, debates have been held. And it's, it's served a most useful purpose because it has aroused and alerted the American people to what the president said he would do. Tom Connolly of Texas, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, violently opposed burdening the commander-in-chief with any such instructions. Stated that Wary was trying to make him swallow a piece of paper. Connolly said, I have already swallowed Wary's piece of paper and it gave me indigestion. And then went on to say... The very resolution which sought to limit the power of the president under the Constitution and transfer that power to the Congress with reference to sending troops to Europe was considered by the Senate and substantially it was rejected. By unanimous consent, the resolution was referred to the Committee on Foreign Relations and the Committee on Armed Services. This joint committee will consider the matter and possibly hold hearings on the same. It will have General Eisenhower before it, 
and will receive his report on the results of his trip to Europe. The senator from Texas managed to get the Senate to commit the wary resolution to two committees for further study. But when newsmen asked Senator Wary if he considered this a defeat, the senator from Nebraska replied, You say this resolution's dead? It's just as live this minute as it was this morning. It's just as live as it was before it was committed. And someday, somehow, somewhere, when this report is made, that issue will be voted upon. In this week's edition of The Great Debate, both Connolly and Wary used the same word over and over again, Eisenhower. Members of both sides of the debate were keeping an interested eye on the gentleman from Kansas and Columbia as he toured the Atlantic Pact countries and ending most of their arguments with the expression, of course, this is all dependent upon what Ike has to say when he gets back from Europe. General Eisenhower, 3,000 miles away from the Potomac, was obviously the most important man in Washington this week. Eric Severide, CBS's chief correspondent in Washington, summed it up this way. At the moment, the Congress is waiting for General Ike to get home and tell it what Europe is doing and what he thinks Europe will do to defend itself. And on the basis of what he says, Congress will express itself as to what we ought to do to help Europe help itself. A certain amount of polite pretense seems to be necessary to keep our check and balance system of government operating smoothly. And this is a case of polite pretense. The president has the power to send over American troops whether Congress likes it or not. But it's better for him that Congress say in advance that it does like it. Congress knows perfectly well already that General Ike will give it a cautiously optimistic report about Europe's efforts and recommend that we do send troops. But it's better for the Congress that it hear from the general in advance. This complicated procedure may waste time, but it does spread the responsibility three ways between President, Congress, and the military. Everybody feels a little safer and more comfortable that way, and in case of future trouble, each one can say, yes, I went along with it, but so-and-so told us, etc., etc. Governmentally, as well as mathematically, the triangle seems to be the most solid geometric form. In Europe, the general, with a minimum of long lunches and receptions and a maximum of hard talk and logistics, was completing his swift survey of the willingness and ability of West Europe to defend itself. As he moved from France to Italy to Belgium to Denmark to Norway to England, the propaganda machines of the communist country shouted out from behind the Iron Curtain warnings about the imperialist Eisenhower from the warring United States. We asked the National Committee for a Free Europe to monitor some of these propaganda blasts from the satellite countries and Russia so that we might let you hear them and know what Russia is saying about General Eisenhower and his mission. They were broadcast in many languages, including English, and are recreated for us now. We thought it better if we let General Eisenhower answer them in his own words from speeches we recorded from his last two weeks in Europe. First, the Bulgarian radio. The instigator of the new war is Eisenhower. Dressed in the gown of the dean of Columbia University, he declared that at present there is not peace, only an armed armistice. It is better to risk war and possible annihilation than to work for peace. That was the Bulgarian radio on Eisenhower. Now here is the general on January 6th as he left for Paris, first stop on his mission to Europe. Mr. President, I devoutly pray that the mission on which I am leaving this morning will result in nothing but peace, security, and tranquility for our various nations. Moscow radio on January 10th. The Supreme Commander-in-Chief, the Gauleiter, wishes to feel the pulse of Europe. It is easy to discern behind all this a gross military and political blackmailing operation so characteristic of Washington's political morals. 
Our money or our men is what Eisenhower will tell his vassals. General Eisenhower on the subject of allies at his news conference in London. As far as I'm concerned, my arms are wide open for any free country that wants to get into it and put his heart into it. I never had too many allies in a fight. Again from the factory where it is made. The Moscow Radio on January 12th. It is not for nothing that in the very first few days of his stay in Paris, Eisenhower broadcast a speech in which he pointedly said that the French, the Dutch, the Italians, and representatives of the other Western European nations must rid themselves of their prejudices in which American propaganda includes the conception of national sovereignty. Now listen to what General Eisenhower did say about the French, the Dutch, the Italians, and prejudices. In the great heritage of Europe, must be found the will, the moral strength, and much of the means to build defenses behind which its children may prosper and live in peace. These are the children of Europe, not just of Holland, Italy, France, or other nations. Let us work for them and put aside all prejudice and past grievances. It is possible that German troops will be included in the defense armies. From Prague in Czechoslovakia, where in better days they hung portraits of Ike, there was this broadcast. It could be anticipated that Eisenhower wouldn't have too many reasons for friendship with these Nazi generals. However, he declared recently that he was looking forward to friendship with the German generals. He must have forgotten 1944 rather quickly. Eisenhower in Frankfurt on January 20th. I shall hope someday that the great German people are lined up with the rest of the free world because I believe in the essential freedom-loving quality of the German people. The general went on to say, I've come to know there is a real difference between the regular soldier and officer and Hitler and his criminal group. All along the line, the Russian charges could be proved false and ridiculous. Perhaps they appeared most ludicrous when they got around to Ike's personal habits. In West Point, the American Army Training Center, in this citadel of American reactionary mercenaries, he was, as admitted by his biographers, a mediocre student. And if ever he excelled in anything, it was again as football player. He became famous in school, let us not forget, for beating up a Negro. Rather than let the general speak for himself on this one, we turn to someone who would know more about this subject than even the Russians. I'm Sergeant First Class John H. Montgomery of Starkfield, Mississippi. I'm uh, one of the people who worked on General Eisenhower's staff during the time he was Chief of Staff of the Army. I worked for him from 1944 until 1947 when he retired from the United States Army. I also think he's one of the greatest men who ever lived, as personally and otherwise. And I also understand there were some remarks about him being football player that I don't know about because it was before my time. In regards to the Russian story of John Eisenhower mistreating a colored soldier, I know personally that he's not that kind of a man. And I do know that if anyone, any Russian or anybody else that would say that he would do a thing like that, I'm sure, I'm positive, that they are lying because i never known him to say anything or do anything towards any of the fellows who worked with him the time that I was there that he ever would attempt to do such a thing or either 
take any action towards something that you wouldn't like because he never did it towards anyone that I know. What neither the Russians nor even the general had said was that no public servant, no soldier, had ever undertaken an assignment with more to lose personally and more to gain for his nation and the free world than General Dwight D. Eisenhower. As for himself, he was easily one of the most respected men of this republic. His record of past performance could perhaps be equaled, but he could go no higher. He could only go down if the Atlantic Pact fails. But at a time when there was a worldwide drought of leadership, he had been willing at the age of 60 to attempt what some think to be impossible, had been willing to risk his name, his stature, his prestige, perhaps his health, to stop the threat of communism in Europe. He would return on Wednesday of next week. His report to the Congress on Thursday might well determine the road down which we will march or stumble. You have heard some typical examples of communist propaganda and distortion. Now, in contrast, brief reports from our CBS reporters who watched General Eisenhower at work. Howard K. Smith, our chief European correspondent from London. General Eisenhower's visit to Europe has, by all accounts, been a shot in the arm to this weary and rather frightened continent. The mere fact that he accepted the Atlantic Command has been a sharp antidote to fears that America might go back into isolation. For, as a London paper said the other day, a man who could probably be president of the United States if he wanted to would not accept this job unless he were sure it were going to be worthwhile and fully supported by his own country. David Schoenbrunn from Paris. General Eisenhower left Paris this morning for Iceland and he got a ringing send-off from the people of France who refused to follow a communist call to demonstrate against the general. For the French government, it was a smashing victory, a victory of much more than local importance. The complete defeat of the communist attempt last night has international significance. Now, Winston Burdett reports from Rome. There's no doubt that the very brief talks which General Eisenhower had with Italian leaders, talks which began in mid-morning and were all over before lunchtime, were a definite political success. The Italian government just now is going through a critical time. It is launching a big defense program that is going to tug hard at the weak seams of the Italian economy. Many leaders here have had serious misgivings about Italy's exact place in the Atlantic Pact, about how much importance the high command would give to the Italian front in case of trouble. For both these reasons, the government needed a word of reassurance, a moral boost. And General Eisenhower, with his great personal gift for appreciating other people's problems, gave them that boost. So chiefly, his trip here was a kind of psychological tonic in a country where morale often tends to wobble badly and public opinion is extremely volatile. And Richard C. Hotelet tells what the Germans thought of Eisenhower. General Eisenhower came to Germany because it is indispensable to the effective defense of Western Europe. He found here a country which is indeed physically capable of becoming the strongest continental ally, but which for some time has been showing all the symptoms of nervous breakdown total defeat in the last war, millions of dead and crippled, poverty and occupation have made peace at any price almost a national fixation. Germany is most directly threatened by Russia. It is intellectually a part of the West. Nevertheless, the Germans have been profoundly unwilling to commit themselves actively to the common cause. General Eisenhower's purpose here was to plunge to the psychological root of this German dilemma and he succeeded from the moment he arrived. He radiated confident leadership and sincerity, 
Everyone he met, government and opposition alike, was deeply impressed. He gave the assurances which the people had been demanding, that bygones are bygones, that German soldiers will be treated as equals, and that the West will mobilize its strength in the cause of peace. Public response to his words showed that there is some spirit here in Germany which can be roused for the alliance. The Russians and their satellites would not hear the reports of Smith, Hotlet, Burdett, and the others. But America was finally beginning to get in some licks against the communists inside Russia. Last Sunday was the 24th anniversary of the death of Lenin, the founder of the Soviet Republic, the man Joe Stalin claims is his idol. This week, the State Department's Voice of America, in many languages, told the Russians that Stalin was never Lenin's choice as his successor. This is what some Russians heard this week. These are Lenin's words. I am outraged by the arrogance of Orjanikidze and the connivance of Stalin and Jashinsky. It is, of course, necessary to hold Stalin and Jashinsky responsible for this out-and-out out great Russian nationalistic campaign. I think that here the hastiness and administrative impulsiveness of Stalin played a fatal role, and also his spitefulness. As a rule, spitefulness plays the worst possible role in politics. From the first, Lenin had opposed Stalin's candidacy to be general secretary of the Communist Party. He had observed... That cook will concoct nothing but peppery dishes. Stalin is too rude, and this fault becomes insupportable in the office of general secretary. Therefore, I propose to the comrades to find a way to remove Stalin from that position and appoint another man, more patient, more loyal, more polite, and more attentive to comrades. You have been listening to a program recalling the death of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, Lenin. 27 years ago this week, on January 21st, 1924. This has been a presentation of the Voice of America. U.S. propaganda against communism was improving. But the big question was the number of radio sets behind the Iron Curtain which could tune us in. There were those returning from Europe who said that dissatisfaction within Russia was growing, that in the event of war, the people would revolt. Harold Stassen, just back from a world tour which did not take him behind the Iron Curtain, said that in a report to the Board of Trustees of the University of Pennsylvania on Monday night. The rulers of the Russian Kremlin will not initiate an all-out world war. But in my view, America and the world faces years or even decades of struggle, but not the devastating horror of an all-out third world war. I base that, of course, upon my finding that there's much unrest inside Russia. There's trouble inside the Red Army. There's trouble inside the Iron Curtain. In my judgment, this trouble would burst forth in genuine counter-revolution if an aggressive world war were initiated by the communist rulers. This week, there was a strong new voice in foreign affairs. The Republicans, with one new seat due them on the vitally important Foreign Affairs Committee, finally decided who the new senator should be. Wayne Morris of Oregon, Homer Capehart of Indiana, and half a dozen others had looked hopefully to the seat. The man chosen was Abel Charles Toby of New Hampshire. The senator said he would try to follow in the footsteps of Arthur Vandenberg. In this crucial epoch, facing problems extremely complex and far-reaching, I feel that partisanship should be conspicuously absent, and I hope to emulate the fine, constructive example of my friend and colleague, Senator Arthur Vandenberg, whose illness and enforced absence 
we all so much deplore. In confronting our foreign policy problems, we must above all take a positive approach for the time for critical inspection of past policies has been replaced by the urgent necessity for constructive, imaginative, cooperative action. There is no cause for defeatism. There is no ground for final fear. A poll of the Senate conducted by the Associated Press showed that a majority of senators would approve sending troops to Europe. But the debate on troops on foreign soil was not limited to Europe, nor were the lines evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. Senator Edwin Johnson, Democrat from Colorado, said we should put up in Korea or get out. Senator Johnson. Three weeks ago, in a telephone message to a mass meeting in Boulder, Colorado, I coined the phrase, all out or get out. These five short words express what I think our policy should be. To me, it is more important for us to save the lives of our GIs than the red faces of our discredited policymakers. When our troops departed from the Hung Nam beachhead some days ago, a GI spoke for America when he wrote these immortal words on a billboard at the point of debarkation. We didn't want the damn place anyhow. On the Korean Peninsula this week, it was sometimes hard to figure out who wanted what places. All week long, our armed patrols probed for the enemy. We came across his small patrols, his isolated units. We moved in and out of towns we had given up a few weeks ago. Wanju was one of these. At least six times it changed hands. Then we took it to stay. CBS correspondent John Jefferson went in with a reinforced infantry battalion. We are now in Wanju itself. The town is quite battered, except for the very south side, where the buildings, for the most part, the usual Korean thatched huts, are merely have broken windows, broken frames. But here in the center, where are around the airfield, the buildings, the Quonset huts that were once put up by us that our B-29s hit the other night, the wreckage is quite complete. And a few minutes later, Jefferson watched the new commander of the 2nd Division, Major General Clark Ruffner, land at Wanju Airstrip to meet with the battalion commander. Jefferson asked the general to describe the mission of our troops. Here's General Ruffner's reply. Uh, you've asked me to uh, say a word or two as to why we're here. Uh, we're here to carry out a well-known uh, principle, keep contact with the enemy. And uh, therefore, we're... We have returned into this area to reestablish and uh, affirmatively decide where he is and what strength in order to keep contact with him. There's too much negative information. We want positive information. Our troops got positive information at Wanju and kept moving north. Today, Allied tanks, troops, and artillery, three strong task forces, captured Su Wan without a fight and found themselves within 15 miles of evacuated Seoul. As some of the troops moved forward, looking for the enemy, behind the lines in such centers as Taigu, there was time for relaxing, time to get away from the war for an hour or two, time for song. I am Staff Sergeant Merle Strang of Bangor, Maine. This song is being sung by the International Choir of the 5th Air Force. The song is Arirang. It is the famous uh, Korean uh, folk song. This uh, choir was uh, started in Seoul, Seoul, Korea, and when we left, we brought 60 members of the choir down here to Taegu, and we have built the choir to 150 voices. Oh, 
Other voices and other sounds at Taigu. The voices you hear come from a mess hall beside one of the busiest airstrips in the world at Taigu. Some days, as many as 1,500 sorties take off from this strip. The mess hall is used for many purposes. The airmen eat there three times a day, sing there once or twice a week, and almost every morning just before dawn, they use it for a briefing session for the flights that will strike north against the communists. Uh, Freddie, I'm going up on an airfield strike up here today. I want to get a little information from you intelligence people about the flak situation and what I can expect on the airfield. What am I supposed to find there? What information have you got on it? That was Lieutenant Colonel Charles Williams of San Antonio, commander of the 9th Fighter Bomber Group, a jet outfit. Williams is about to brief his flyers, but first, he must be briefed by the intelligence officer. Uh, there are definitely flak positions on this particular airfield. Also, there are uh, reports that Enemy air yaks are in these two revetments here in the northeast section of the airfield. Now, your primary mission be to knock out those yaks. Young Second Colonel Williams gets the mission clearly defined in his own mind. Then his pilots troop in for their briefing. Okay, boys, we're going to start up in a few minutes here, going up to hit this airfield. I've been down to intelligence and got all the poop on it. Anybody got any question? Colonel, what's the weather up there in the target area today? Uh, the weather up there is supposed to be pretty good. There was some ground fog. I think it'll be burned off by the time we get there. We should have about 8 or 10 miles visibility. What kind of trouble do they have with flak over there the last couple of missions? Uh, last couple of missions have gone in. There's a lot of flak around the target area. However, the route that we picked out to go in, I don't think we'll get bothered with any of it. Uh, we'll be low enough and fast enough. I don't believe they'll hear us coming. We should get through there with no sweat. Colonel, do you expect any air opposition? Uh, there's a possibility there may be some yaks. There's a 26 got jumped by a conventional yak up there yesterday, but uh, if we see any of them, we shouldn't have any trouble handling them. A few minutes later, Colonel Williams is in his own jet, talks to his crew chief. If you listen closely, you will hear the actual sound of his parachute gear clicking closed. Sergeant, how about give me a hand on my chute here, will you please? Okay, let's wind it up. That is not yet the sound of a jet engine. Jets like Model T's need cranking to get up the speed of the engine. That's an auxiliary motor, about 25 horsepower, which is rolled up beside the plane to start it. The engine is brought to speed. Williams opens his throttle. He applies ignition. The kerosene-based fuel flows in. It catches. The air is sucked in through the opening at the nose of the plane where the propeller would be. The air is heated by the fuel, becomes combustible, expands through the turbo, and is ejected from the tail of the plane in the form of gas, thus forcing the plane forward and into the air. The jets take off in a matter of seconds, are out of sight in less than 30 seconds. Less than one hour, but more than 500 miles later, the ground crews are sitting near the control tower, waiting for word of the mission. The planes check the tower for landing instructions before they are seen or heard. In the case of the jets, they'll be on the ground in about 40 or 50 seconds. 7253, two, 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 King 2 Tower, go ahead. Roger, 2523, landing left hand, traffic, runway 31 left, winds are calm, altimeter 3032, check turning down window. Less than a minute later, the planes have landed. And this time, it's the flyer's turn to do the briefing. How's the ship, sir? 
Our ship's okay. We didn't do too good on a mission on the airfield. We'd had to dive bomb a town. Everything went all right. Uh, nothing wrong with the airplane. It's okay. Colonel Williams' 9th Fighter Bomber Group, based at Taigu, had a surprise visitor this week. The SCAP, the aircraft of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur, at 71 in the battle of his life. He stood beside his plane at the Taigu Strip, and while other planes took off on missions to the north, the general gave the reporters a statement. He spoke slowly, so that they could copy down every word. fortnight, the statesmen of the world, both those with and those without portfolio, have offered many solutions as to how to end the war in Korea. The New York Daily News, the largest newspaper in the world, is often a symposium for the statesmen without portfolios, who write endless letters to the editor. The paper calls its letters column, The Voice of the People. This Wednesday, there was one suggestion that might have been endorsed by Trigvili, and certainly would have the approval of any New York cop. Dear Voice of the People... The U.N. Army in Korea needs some help. How about sending some of New York's 11,000 taxi drivers there with their cabs? They are more dangerous than any bomb Stalin may drop on New York. Very truly yours, E.W.S. Before it was time for General MacArthur to requisition the 11,000 taxi cabs of New York for combat against the enemy, the delegates to the United Nations would have to make sure that they had exhausted all the more peaceful methods of ending the war in Korea. On Saturday of last week, America, in the voice of Warren Austin, asked the U.N. to declare Red China the aggressor. Both houses of our Congress voted unanimously that this should be done. But the proposal was not enthusiastically supported by all other nations. In Britain, Prime Minister Attlee thought it would be a mistake. Sir Gladwin Jebb, speaking for him, said, not for the first time, let's go slowly. On Wednesday, Sir Benegal Rao of India had reported that the Chinese government at Beiping which has three times turned down our ceasefire proposals, really wants peace and concessions. Ambassador Austin, usually a very calm man, was furious, said that China was just trying to split the free world. That it is a transparent effort to divide the free world and to delay the exercise of the Pacific functions, the peacemaking functions of the United Nations. Postpone, delay, procrastinate. And so far as one can understand the English language, it is not even new. It is not a proposition. It is not addressed to the United Nations. It isn't much more than a postal card would be. If the United States succeeds in getting the UN to brand Red China the aggressor, it will have to decide then 
what to do next. And some people in Washington are saying, use the atom bomb. One of the controversies now raging is, just how far can the atom bomb go in winning a war? Can we, if total war comes, bring the Soviet Union to defeat through our atomic weapons? One of the men who knows most about atomic energy is David E. Lilienthal, who until a year ago guided the U.S. atomic energy program. Today's Collier's Magazine has a rather startling article by Mr. Lilienthal, who is leaving shortly for India and private conversations with Prime Minister Nehru. Here is David E. Lilienthal. The A-bomb has indeed been a great deterrent on Russia up to now. But in the five years since Hiroshima, the A-bomb has been overvalued in the popular mind and in the military mind as a kind of guarantee of victory in case of war. Korea jarred us free of this notion, this notion that the A-bomb is an all-powerful, all-sufficient, one-shot answer to all of our security needs. We mustn't go astray in our thoughts or hopes or plans because of the H-bomb either. No such weapon as a hydrogen bomb now exists. Whether there ever will be is only a remote possibility. We've got to get strong the hard way. There isn't any easy way. We must buy security the costly way. There isn't any cheap way. An atomic attack would not destroy Russia. It would gravely, terribly wound Russia, but not defeat her. Our reluctance to go to war, our efforts to avert that awful tragedy for ourselves and for the world, may lead to miscalculations by the Russian leaders. If they underestimate the power of this country to wage war, to devastate Russian cities, they will have made an error that will never be forgotten. They will have caused the erasure of most of the industrial progress built with such pride and such deprivation by the people of Russia. Let no Russian leader, and no rattled American for that matter, underestimate the fabulous productive capacity of this country or of our ability to produce fighting men the equal of any. Let no one fool himself by talk of how we shall exhaust ourselves by fighting a war all over the world, or by providing arms for Europe. A war with Russia would be terrible. It would be bloody. It would be costly and heartbreaking. But if we must, we can fight, and we will fight, and we will win. You are listening to Hear It Now. CBS's weekly review of the news told in the actual recorded voices of the people who made the news. We pause briefly for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Program 7. In the new CBS 60-minute document for ear, based on the week's news and the problems and tasks facing the American people. Once again, here is the editor of Hear It Now, Edward R. Murrow. This week, food prices soared to all-time new highs. The meat industry said it was due to hoarding, that panicky citizens had hidden away in their freezers over a million pounds of meat, 
thus sending prices soaring. Later in this program, we shall try to make a brief report on Meat USA, including the biography of a pound of steak. Most prices and all wages in this country have been frozen as of last midnight. The government issued the orders a few hours ago, and the men who must administer them make it clear that this is a sort of stopgap device to hold things as they are until better regulations can be worked out. There will be no rollback of either prices or wages, but they must stay as they are except for certain food prices, which under the law can still go up. The man in charge of this overall stabilization program is Eric Johnston, the former head of the Motion Picture Association. As he sees it, inflation is to be feared as much as Russia. Inflation is one of the greatest threats that we face in the United States. I think it is just as great a threat as Russia, because I think Russia could lick us if we weaken ourselves by inflation. Wage and price controls are only part of the answer. We will have to do it through increased production through vigorous credit and tax policies, and through other measures to relieve the pressures of inflation. We will have to do it, and do it vigorously. If we don't, inflation can ruin us all. It is a silent thief that steals from everyone's pocketbook. But one long-standing controversy was apparently ended this week. I once made a crack to the effect that nice guys finish last. Well, it's been taken a little too literally. That was the voice of Leo Ernest DeRocher, the lippy and successful manager of the New York Giants, who once in his turbulent career coined the expression, nice guys finish last. Today, Leo took back that phrase, particularly as it applied to a certain umpire. In Florida, Bill Clem, the elder statesman of big league umpires, is 78 and very ill. Mr. DeRocher heard about his old friend in the blue suit who often had the last word and said he'd like to send this word to the ump who always called him as he saw him, Leo DeRocher. Uh, well, I've been tossed out of more than one game by old Bill, but I never resented it, and, and uh, Bill never harbored any grudge against any ball player that I ever knew uh, that questioned one of his decisions. I recall one time while I was playing for the St. Louis Cardinals, the old gas horse gang, uh, I was the captain of the club, and Frankie Frisch, now manager of the Cubs, was then managing St. Louis. And uh, Bill Clem uh, was well known for, after being in an argument with managers or players, he would walk away and draw a line with his foot, saying that if you cross that line, you are automatically out of the park. Well, this day, uh, I had gotten into a beef with Bill and was tossed out of the game. And Frisch charged up and run right up to the line, and Clem was waiting for him, just looking at him, and Frisch stopped dead and then walked around it. And Clem just looked at him and he said, same thing. He says, on your way, and tossed us both out of the game. Well, you know, those are the things that stay in a ball player's mind throughout the years. Bill Clem was noted for that, but also everybody knows that Bill Clem is a very sick man right at this moment. In fact, he's fighting for his life. And I once made a crack to the effect that nice guys finish last. Well, it's been taken a little too literally. Uh... But I still don't retract it, except to say if there's one guy it never applied to, well, it's Bill Clem. Get well, Bill. Baseball would just never be the same without you. And New York's police commissioner, Thomas Murphy, had this bit of advice for a graduating class at the police academy. The gruff, arrogant policeman has no place in modern society. You must remember you are the public representatives of the city. 
and your attitude and demeanor will redound to the credit or discredit of yourself, the department, and of the city. The unnecessary use of force is a despicable thing that brings discredit to the policeman and to the department. The policeman cannot afford to lose his temper, however great the provocation. Earlier in this program, you heard Eric Johnston say, Inflation is one of the greatest threats that we face in the United States. I think it is just as great a threat as Russia. We talk a great deal about Russia on this program. Now let's talk about inflation, where we feel it most. In the past 30 days, the price of steak went up more than 4%. How? Why did it happen? This next story on Hear It Now is the documented biography of a pound of steak. During 1951, the average American, that most elusive figure, will eat 148 pounds of meat. This is the biography of one of those pounds. And the voices you are about to hear originate in the Chicago stockyards, a ranch in Montana, a feed farm in Iowa, and a butcher shop in New York. Before we begin, just a few statistics. As we said, we each eat roughly 148 pounds of beef, veal, pork, and lamb a year and spend 6% of our income on these meats. Since 1941, the story of meat is the story of inflation. We take you now to the office of Ewan Clegg, chief of the Bureau of Labor Statistics in Washington, for a very quick report on the price of round steak since 1939. August 1939, just before the war began in Europe, 36 cents. 1941, the year of defense preparation, 39 cents. 1942, the first full year of America at war, 44 cents. 1943, 44 cents. 1944, 42 cents. 1945, 41 cents. June 1946, while the OPA was still on, 42 cents. July 1946 just after the OPA ended, 61 cents. 1947, 75 cents. 1948, 90 cents. 1949, 85 cents. 1950, 94 cents. December, 1950, $1. Now you're in the butcher shop of Fred Loeb at 1300 First Avenue in New York. It might well be the butcher shop just around the corner from you in your hometown. Hello, Fred. Hello, Miss Teliga. How are you? Okay, and you? How are the kids? Hi. What you like to have? Oh, I don't know. Uh, No, no, you know what I think I'll have? I think I'll have a nice sirloin steak. Special occasion tonight. All right, you got a good steak. Good. How big you need it about? Well, enough for four of us, you know. All right, I go inside and get it. Is that big enough? Oh, that's fine, fine. All right, I put on a scale. That steak comes to three twenty-five. What? Three twenty-five for a steak? Oh, Fred, how much a pound is it? Well, don't you read the papers? Meat went up. Again? Look, Miss Kladeka, it's not my fault that the prices are so high. Well, whose fault is it? I have to pay more the wholesaler, and I have to charge more. So it's the poor housewives that have to suffer. 
You know, things are so expensive, so darn expensive, that you're afraid to eat, afraid to shop, afraid to do anything. That's not my fault. I have to pay for it, so the housewife has to pay for it. So it's not your fault, and it's not the housewife's fault, and whose fault is it? Mrs. Kletika wants to know who is to blame. The butcher says he isn't making any more money. It must be the wholesaler. So we went down to the market area in Manhattan and asked the wholesaler. We as wholesalers only operate at a gross profit of a penny and a half per pound. Now, uh, you could readily see that the wholesalers are not making as much money as people think. We have to pay more money to the packers, those who slaughter the cattle. And this cost must be passed on to the retailer who in turn passes it on to the consumer. Who's to blame for all this condition? We cannot at this time place our fingers on the proper source that's creating this condition. The wholesaler says that he makes less than a cent and a half on every pound of round steak he sells. Buys his meat from the packing house in Chicago. Maybe they're to blame. So our reporter in Chicago went to the packers. It is a fact that because of increased income, the demand for meat, especially the more favored cuts of meat, is quite high. However, the outlook for meat is excellent, about a billion pounds more than in 1950. It is for this reason, and remembering the black market that developed during the last war, that the livestock and meat industry feels there is no necessity at this time for the imposition of price controls and rationing, which inevitably would discourage production and lead to the restoration of black markets. What I am trying to say is that Mrs. Consumer is the real boss of the meat situation, and it is within her power to extend her meat dollar as far as possible through careful buying. Uh, we always thought the packing house, which does the actual slaughtering, got the cattle from the grower. But in between, there is the commission agent in Chicago. He says he isn't making any money either. The commission man does not take title to any livestock. He is not a broker in the sense that he speculates on the livestock. He charges a commission which is based on a unit cost. I might add at this time that that... Uh, cost is a very small one. And the last figures I have on costs for selling on over $600 million worth of livestock sold on the open market, percentage-wise, the commission figured 41 hundredths of 1%. I would like to underline that that is less than one-half of 1%. The commission agent said to try the feeder... The feeder is the man who gets the steers when they are young calves, feeds them on corn until ready for the market. Near Cedar Rapids, Iowa, J.C. Holbert, a feeder, says, I'm not responsible. If you buy good calves, you got to pay from 35 to 38 cents a pound for them as feeders. Well, he start with that high cost. And then uh, let's do just a little simple figuring here. Uh, any schoolboy can figure it take about uh, 20 pounds of corn at least to make two pounds of gain on these steers. So it costs you 30 cents a pound to put on that gain. You're a pretty good feeder if you can do it for that. If this cattle feeder is going to stay in business with the increase of cost of labor and the increase of cost of feed, he's got to have a good price for these finished cattle or the American public is not going to have beef to eat very long. The feeder in Iowa 
said that he was just one chapter in the life of a pound of steak and the steer that bore it. That the calf that he feeds to maturity started his life in Montana. So we went to the ranch of Frank Spencer, 40 miles from Great Falls near the Canadian border, and asked him who is making all the money in cattle. Even though Finnish cattle are selling on the market for a much higher price than they were in 42, my percentage of profit per unit is considerably less now than nine years ago. I do not believe that the rancher can be held responsible for the price of beef when he has no control over the feeder and packer prices which affect the retail counter price. In my opinion, the final price is dependent on the housewife herself. So we went back to the housewife and reported to her on what the butcher, the packer, the commission man, the feeder, and especially the rancher in Montana had said. Uh, oh, I don't know. It all confuses me. I don't know the answer. My husband makes more money now than he did, but what he comes home with, with taxes taking out, I just about live. I don't know. To me, it seems like the old army game of passing the buck. And a 50-cent buck at that. We went still further. Asked the farmer in Nebraska who grows the corn for the feeder in Iowa why corn was so high. He said his farm machinery cost twice as much as it used to. And in Illinois, the machinery manufacturer said the cost of labor is more than twice as high as it was in the 30s. And at the end of the round robin, the working man who is paid by the tractor company says he needs high wages because the price of food has gone so high. Everyone seems to blame everyone else. And no one seems happy in spite of the fact that there will be 12% more meat available this year than ever before in our history. Even the butcher's wife, Mrs. Ruth Loeb, is unhappy about it all. I wish people wouldn't fight with my husband in the store about the high prices. Uh... And then it's not his fault that you're paying the high prices. He's paying more for the wholesaler. And uh, that's why he has to charge you more, too. In this strongest, most bountiful land in the world, we're back where we started from. There's more meat on the market than ever before. Prices are higher than ever before. The normal equation of supply and demand won't stand up. And while obviously somewhere along the line someone is making a profit on meat, it always seems to be the other fellow. We don't know the answer. But we do know the American housewife is in the middle. And tonight's freeze on steak offers her only this doubtful consolation. Prices can only go up another 5%. Is your ear having difficulty in identifying the strange sound you hear? It comes from Wichita, Kansas. Eight words a minute. Typed by a mother of two children... By holding a pencil between her teeth. Ken Davis, who runs the news operation at KFH, our CBS station at Wichita, called us yesterday and said, If you guys want a March of Dimes story for this week, I've got it. From Wichita, Kansas, Mrs. Margaret Shapley. The doctor came back for an unscheduled evening visit. The little Catholic sister slipped in to whisper, I'll pray for you. So here was death. To my surprise, I wasn't afraid. I've never been too sure about God, but if he was like they say, he would judge me fairly. I asked him just one thing, that if I must leave my boy and girl, he would take care of them. The long night dragged. The steady pump of the iron lung wasn't enough. I gasped for breath, and the nurse brought oxygen, turning it stronger and stronger. Finally, my need leveled off, and by morning, somehow I knew I wouldn't die. Afterward, I wished I had. 
For one day, I knew I would never walk nor use my hands again. In despair, I would have taken my life. But a paralyzed person can't reach for a bottle of poison or jump off a bridge. I couldn't escape, so I fought with the only weapon I could find, faith. Faith that somehow I could make it up to others and to myself for the burden I am. I am typing by holding a pencil between my teeth. Many friends have thought I might sell stories. Now is my chance to try. John, who isn't quite five, is my best critic. His favorite character is Oscar, a fat little worm who became a butterfly. Carol, a blue-eyed, golden-haired little charmer, likes stories, too. She climbs onto my bony, hard lap, opens a magazine upside down, leans back and commands, Weed to me, Mommy. A friend came by to visit, saying simply, I was lonesome. Those words made me very happy, for if I can give comfort or companionship to someone lonely or troubled, then I am paying a bit of my own way. To that story of patience and fortitude, we can add nothing. But permit us to remind you that our heritage demands that we measure an individual's usefulness in terms of his example and his service to a society at peace. The March of Dimes needs and deserves our help. You have just heard Program 7 in the new CBS series, Hear It Now, a weekly document for ear based on the week's news. All the voices you heard were real. They were recorded on the scene of history in the making. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Morrow and Fred W. Friendly and a CBS staff which includes Irving Gitlin, Edmund Scott, and Charles Ashley. Portions of tonight's broadcast were recorded by CBS correspondents George Herman and Robert P. Martin in Korea and by Armed Forces Radio Teams. Art Buckner is the engineer. Other portions of this program originated at WTOP in Washington, WMSC, Columbia, South Carolina, WEEI, Boston, KMBC, Kansas City, WCAU, Philadelphia, WAGA Atlanta, WBBM Chicago, KFBB Great Falls, Montana, WMT Cedar Rapids, Iowa, KCBS San Francisco, KNX Los Angeles, and the British Broadcasting Corporation. Special acknowledgement is made to Northwest Airlines for rapid shipment of combat recordings for use on this program. Edward R. Morrow can be heard each weekday evening at 7.45 Eastern Standard Time over most of these same CBS stations. This is Olin Tice speaking. This is CBS, where you laugh at Jack Benny every Sunday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System.